I'm Max, and this is Diaspora Files. I'm Tella. And I'm Yosola. And this is Diaspora Files. We're old friends born in London to Nigerian parents who moved over to the UK in the late 80s. Our podcast is a continuation of the many conversations we've had about home and belonging growing up in Britain. We'll be speaking to people we've met who share a complex sense of home. Along the way, we discuss the stuff that binds people together, as well as the experiences that make us different. The diversity row over this year's Oscars revealed more than just a lack of recognition for black talent, and took us back to a conversation we recorded last year. Chris Rock's lazy joke about Asian Americans highlighted why Hollywood's race issue is not simply black and white. Born in South Korea, Max works in the film industry and lives in London. We sat down to talk about the different worlds he has inhabited so far. We discussed his experience of growing up in America's Deep South and his family's recent memory of poverty before South Korea's economy took off. We also find out why the typical image of the desexualized Asian man on screen makes his blood boil. Thank you so much for coming, Max. We really, really appreciate it. Um, these, are, these are questions we always start off asking. Sure. So in your own words, can you tell us where you are from? I am from South Korea via Canada, okay. the United States, England, and a bit of Australia. So, Australia? Yes. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, I'm just, I guess, a little mix of all those things. <laughs> okay, wonderful. And tell us how you ended up here. Well, my dad's um, work basically moved him around for pretty much all my life. So just followed him, you know, where, wherever they sent him. And sure enough, they sent us to England, maybe around 2004, you know, okay. during the Olympics and yeah. all that was happening. And I've been here since. Yeah. And I'd also like to know, when did you first feel different? Um, I think, I think I've always felt different. Not necessarily in a bad way, but um, I've always felt like an outsider, and uh, now recently I've taken that on as like a, you know as something to be proud of, like a badge of honor. But you know, ever since I was little, when uh, I grew up in Alabama, and kids would you know not maliciously, but kids would say, "Oh, like do you speak Chinese?" And I'd be like, "No, I don't speak Chinese, because <laughs> I'm not from China," you know. So. You know, so, kind of. you know, just things like that and, you know, little things. It wasn't done out of malice, but it is, you know, it's othering you and, you know, it's, it's I guess it's not a good feeling, but um, but now I'm I'm kind of proud of my, you know, the, the, what makes me different and I like standing out and, you know. Mm-hmm. And also, can I ask about growing up in Alabama? So where else did you grow up? Were there other cities or was it principally Alabama? It was principally Alabama, the deep south. Please speak yeah. to us more about what went down there. And obviously, well, or not so obviously, I'm making a huge assumption, but um, from the outside, what we know of Alabama is that it's a place of racial tension, but very mm. much black against white. Mm. But you are neither black nor white. Yeah. <laughs> so what did, what did that mean for you? How did you experience that? You know what? I think I was probably too little to comprehend. How old were you? I was probably, oh, I was like first or second year of school, primary school. Okay. I was, yeah. like, very I was like, okay. what, seven? Yeah, okay. something like that, yeah. So I probably didn't comprehend the 
uh, if there were, you know, and I'm sure, of course, there are, you know, the racial tensions and mm -hmm. um, the political historical context. But I do remember the conservatism very well. Okay. <laughs> As in, I still distinctly remember it was 2000, around the time of the Bush versus Gore election. Right. And I remember our, you know, elementary school had a little um, mock election. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember just, I didn't know anything about politics, of course, because I was, you know, six. No, you know, of course I wouldn't. But I voted for Al Gore, the Democrat, you know, the, the liberal <laughs> over George Bush. And I was like, uh, it was just instinct. But I asked everyone else and they, everyone voted for Bush. No. And I was like, why? Like, what, why did you vote for Bush? I, I didn't know anything about Bush. I didn't, have, I didn't have anything against him, you know, like, I was six, you know. But, um, and, and everyone said, you know, it's because my parents voted for Bush or they're going to vote for Bush. And again, you know, that feeling of being the, the outsider and the, the different one. So, yeah, I'm, I remember the conservatism quite well. Yeah, okay, because so. I'm just interested in finding out a bit about your upbringing, particularly sticking with Alabama. What was, what's it like for a South Korean family to you know, raise children in Alabama? You know, it's going back to the whole tribal thing. You stick to who you know, what's familiar. So there's actually quite a large South Korean community. Okay. in Alabama and you know, there's South Koreans where it, wherever yeah. you go like you know you just you just gotta look for them they say the same thing about Nigerians yeah, as well, yeah. Like they are everywhere, everywhere. Yeah. and South Korea is not a humongous like population mm -hmm. 50 million maybe you see, there's South Koreans everywhere and sure enough in the deep south in <laughs> but you know redneck nation Alabama there are oh South Koreans wow. and what's the community and like? like very Christian and conservative okay yeah so just like the people the white people and the black folks there honestly so um, we had to join a church even though my parents weren't really that religious and I'm not really that religious either so <laughs> but that's the only way you can make South Korean friends um, you join the church because that's where all the South Koreans literally congregate and you know go to mm -hmm. so it's a diaspora, I guess, okay. yeah, in the middle of, mm -hmm. of Alabama. And you, you get the South Korean supermarkets, the convenience stores, the restaurants. And of course, you know, after church, we'd always go afterwards for, you know, dinner or lunch. We'd go to the South Korean um, restaurants and, of course, you know, South Korean, even Buddhist temples, you know. So it's, it really is um, South Korea transplanted in Alabama. Moving on, um, where did you go to university? I went to Cambridge and I graduated last year. Okay. What did you study? I studied history. Wonderful. What were your expectations of Cambridge before you got there? I thought I would be completely out of my depth intellectually. I thought everyone would be smarter than me. Um, I thought people would be richer than me. Uh, and all of that was true. People are smarter than you and richer than you and they work harder than you. <laughs> but you know what? I survived and I made lifelong friends there. Um, I, yeah, um, I, I enjoyed my social life. I'm also quite curious um, because in my experience, Cambridge is not always a comfortable it's not always a comfortable place to be. I found it eventually to be quite a suffocating and ultimately a conservative place. And I found a lot of that 
for me came through sort of an identity politics trying to find my way yeah. my identity my racial identity my ethnic identity mm. um for me i felt a lot of the preoccupations i felt in cambridge as well came from having a diasporic identity mm. was that an experience for you at all i think it was a bit of both um, okay. benefited me but i also found it stifling and suffocating in some ways because it's really weird with academics because I think on the whole academics are quite liberal on the political mm -hmm. spectrum, especially historians, but the history course at Cambridge is quite painfully antiquated and outdated. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very heavily focused on British and European um, history. Mm -hmm. um, we had pretty much only a handful of um, of uh, papers that concentrated on non-English speaking and non-European countries. One of the papers was called, was something called um, World History Since, I don't know, like 16 blah blah blah. <laughs> and I just thought, well, you're gonna, you're gonna put all of world history, <laughs> which basically means black people and Asian people, <laughs> in one paper, <laughs> whilst you're devoting a whole paper to the French Revolution so yeah. you know it's just the priorities are a bit you know um, mismatched I guess so I guess in that way um, academically I found it not as uh, expansive as the learning could have been. I want to ask a bit about that but sort of taking it beyond Cambridge and thinking about the fact that you chose to study history and you mentioned that you couldn't find papers that opened mm. you to a history beyond you know the British Isles or America or mm. at least Anglophone <coughs> nations how important is your personal history and your heritage to you? I think it's um, it's very important to me, um, especially recently. Um, you know, as you mature and as you, you know, it's I've, I have my first job now, and uh, it really makes you take stock and reflect. And mm. um, I remember um, when I was a kid, my my parents would always tell me stories. You know, like. Of, of the old days and how uh, you know South Korea was a very poor country and they had to ration their food they couldn't um, at school you weren't allowed to have white rice because that was deemed too luxurious and too you know mm -hmm. for the privileged classes so you would have to have brown rice so apparently what people what kids did was they took their lunch boxes they covered the top bit with brown rice but in the bottom bit they had white rice <laughs> to get away with it. <laughs> so cunning. Yes, exactly. Because everything was rationed and they had austerity measures for um, during my parents' generation. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, but you know, when I was a kid listening to stories like that, I was just like, ah, oh, okay, that's funny, whatever. But then like recently I quite, I, I realized, you know, I've done a bit of research I, I, into the history of South Korea. I still don't know as much as I should, but it was an extremely poor country <laughs> right up until at least late 70s so basically my parents you know generation so pretty much anyone over the age of 40 in South Korea will know what abject poverty is like they will know what it's like to starve and recently I asked my mom like you, you know did you have to starve sometimes and she said oh yes of course <laughs> you had to starve because everyone was poor and that was just the norm everyone was poor my mom is actually university edu educated but she could only go to university because her uh, older brother my uncle 
um, decided to forego going to university to actually go to work to raise money for her to go to university because my my mom's dad died when she was quite young so he was basically a father figure to her and he had to sacrifice a lot in his life so that she could have the opportunities um, that he he couldn't so and just yeah stories like that and listening to my dad talking about how he you know they didn't have toilet paper they had to use leaves when he was little <laughs> I know it sounds disgusting, doesn't it? Uh, but <laughs> it's, uh, I'm glad that you love. It's the truth, people. I'm not here to play. I mean, <laughs> people use leaves <laughs> once upon a time. But now, I mean, South Korea. You know, going back to the history of it all, it's one of it's. I think it has like the I don't know the precise figure, but it's like the 13th largest economy in the world. It's everyone's pretty much middle class. My parents are definitely middle class. It's had an extraordinary economic boom in the 70s, which quite funnily enough was due to a benevolent dictatorship. He was basically president for oh, definitely maybe close to 19 or so years. And funnily enough, his daughter is now the president of South Korea. Right. She's the first female president of South Korea. Democratically true. elected, yeah. yes, but yeah, so that's a really odd example of how actually a dictatorship in some ways did bring about <laughs> some economic benefits to a country because without him, who knows, South Korea might still be wiping their asses with leaves. You never know. <laughs> that's so interesting. And I'm not going to ask you to speak. Well, I am kind of going to ask you to speak on behalf that's of a wide range of people. But I didn't know that. And I knew that South Korea was once very poor, but I didn't actually know how sort of familiar poverty would be to a lot of people that are still alive today. So I'm interested in how you think that understanding and that closeness to poverty has affected you know, your parents' mentality and their approach. I think life. it affects and influences everything. And first off, the language, as in even, okay, when... When, in the beginning of the meal, um, it's a very common saying to say, eat lots, eat lots. And that sounds really weird in English, doesn't it? But in Korea, it's the most natural phrase, like eat lots, because, you know, it probably originates from the days when you couldn't eat loads. <laughs> so, you know, you better eat loads. You know, you yeah. eat, eat a lot, yeah, what, while you can, while what's, you have the food. So, what's the Korean for that? Uh, mani mogo. Okay. Uh, mani mogo. Uh, and so, um, yeah, it was only, you just, if things like that, um, ling linguistic things like that as well. And also, um, what else, I guess, you know, obviously a few years ago, the whole size Gangnam Style thing came mm -hmm. out and that was a worldwide craze and whatever. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of people missed how politically, social, socially and politically satirical that song was and the music video um, was, how... Um, it was a direct parody and mocking of the consumerism of South Korean, modern South Korean culture. Because Gangnam is basically a area in Seoul, the richest area in Seoul. And it is basically the Kensington and Knightsbridge of the Chelsea's of, um, you know, of, of Seoul, of, of South Korea. So, of course, you know, if you have people who, you know, in their lifetimes, they went from being literally dirt poor to being, to having money, 
And of course you're gonna hang on to, you know, the TVs and the nice um, apartments and the nice cars and um, send, you wanna send your kids to the best schools, the best private schools, you wanna send them to, you know, Ivy League universities abroad and Oxbridge and that's what you aspire to. And that is a direct political and social um, consequence. I'm Tele. And I'm Yosola, and this is Diaspora Files. In the next part of the interview, we turn our focus to the world of film and TV and the dubious portrayals of ethnic minority characters on screen. Why film? Why did you choose this industry? I, ever since I was a kid, I've always watched film and TV, and I was obsessed with the people on screen, the people making the films be off screen, because I love stories. I love a good story, especially when it's told well. <laughs> um, and yeah, um, and that's what just what I grew up with. Um, so, but for the longest time, I thought uh, in a career in the film industry would just be something unattainable. Um, something that was so completely out of reach because not many people are actually in, in the film industry and successful in it because it's a very unstable, tough industry, you know, it's hard to break in and once you've broken in it's hard to move up, you know, you have to be very hardworking but very lucky at the same time. So I've always like thought, okay, you know what, I'm just going to confine it to a hobby. I'm not gonna risk it, I'm just gonna sit, get a safe, respectable job. Again, that's, I guess, coming from my South Korean roots, you know, and the attitudes instilled in me from a young age. I'm just gonna play it safe. Um, but sure enough, maybe just over, maybe eight months ago, um, I found out about Creative Access. <laughs> this is uh, this has not been sponsored by Creative Access, but I just personally would, dedicate, would like to dedicate this to Creative Access. Uh, <laughs> But no, they're a great organization, a great nonprofit that helps um, BAME um, graduates and well, just people in young people in general to break into the creative industries, which so far has been very closed off to diverse talent and diverse um, people. That's interesting. The language you use closed off to minority, ethnic minority people. Is that a deliberate tactic or is it? Just a sort of mentality. <coughs> well, I think really up until quite recently, most of the professional industries in the UK have been closed off to um, uh, to uh, ethnic minorities. But I think they're making, they have already made very quick steps into mm. taking in more mm. um, and widening access yeah. to ethnic minorities. Because I think, especially, I mean, I'm not advocating working for a bank all of a sudden, but in these international um, companies, actually, you know, for all the bad that they do, they also recognize the, they quickly recognize the fact that actually um, we do need a diverse workforce mm -hmm. because we are international organizations. Yeah. We need people from different backgrounds and who can also speak different languages and who look different because we do trade with all sorts of different, you know, countries yeah. and companies all around the world. But the film industry and the creative industries in general, uh, I think, have not caught on to that fact as quickly. I think it's slowly but surely changing now. 
but I think they've been very slow um, to adapt to that. Um, and who knows? I mean, I'm not an expert. Uh, I've only, you know, worked in film for seven months, but I'm not an expert. But from my impression is, it probably isn't as global as <laughs> somewhat like at working at a big. Even though a lot of these films do have global reach, um, it doesn't. Uh, the people that you work with on a day-to-day basis is local. You know, it's uh, things are a lot more localized. Um, so, yeah. Mm. Um, and we also wanted to ask a bit more specifically about the way particular cultures are represented on screen. So you heard that you grew up watching a lot of films and movies and TV shows. And were they Western TV shows? And yes, films? yeah. Um, so growing up and also now as an adult, what do you feel about the representation of Asian people, and especially Asian men, on screen in mainstream Western cinema? I think it is appalling how few Asian people are on screen. How, okay, so recently in America, who I actually think they're quite forward with the whole diversity initiatives, actually much more than Britain. Um, in America, there's this new sh- a sitcom called Fresh Off the Boat, uh, which is actually based on uh, an Asian American family. Mm. And apparently this is the first um, sitcom or ba- first show, um, based on an Asian-American family since Margaret Cho's All-American Girl, and that was 1995. Mm. So it's been a long Mm. time coming. And of course, Margaret Cho's show was canceled after a season because, according to her, um, the network executives um, were sending her different messages. You're not being Asian enough. You're being too Asian. Tone that down. They were literally saying that to her. Uh, they were, the, you know, those were the notes to her, basically. You're being, you know, so, and she also had to fight against all the different interest groups because it wasn't just white people not buying into the whole Asian thing. It was also Asian people being against the whole Asian thing, seeing, hey, um, there's someone like me on TV, but that's not how I am. You're misre- misrepresenting us. So it's a lot of infighting as well within the community. So now, tw- 20 years on, fast forward, we have a new sitcom which, which fresh off the boat of an Asian family mm-hmm. which I'm not too fond of actually from a creative angle mm-hmm. but ratings wise it is doing quite well it's been renewed for a second season mm-hmm. and I just hope this is the first of many more sh- TV shows and really films as well um, based on Asian people as protagonists that to me also sounds like it's a program about an Asian family yeah. rather than a program about a family and how do you feel when you're sort of in terms of representation about the fact that you're always racialized yeah. when you're on screen it's never just because obviously we live it within our mm. ethnic identities but at the same time is that the focus of your existence and should that always be what <coughs> is being explored on screen I think there is a way to make it I think there are ways to explore racial issues and what it is, you know, living in a diaspora mm. um, of being an ethnic minority in America or the UK without it being the subject mm. and the plot of the show. Mm. And that's what Empire does so brilliantly because it's a trashy, melodramatic soap opera. And people watch it because of that. People mm. don't necessarily watch it because, oh, there are black people on, on TV and it's about black stories. Because mm. they aren't black stories, they're universal stories with black talent. Mm. And that's why people, that's why that resonates with people. So I think, 
I mean, who knows, maybe in five, ten years' time, if <laughs> I can manage to break out of being an assistant. That's the, those are the kind of shows that I want to develop and produce. Um, shows that do show diverse stories that are universally relatable, that aren't necessarily about, you know, first-generation immigrant family, because I think we've seen that um, time and time again. And fresh off the boat, I don't want to... I, th I think it's great that there was a show like that mm -hmm. on TV, but the main characters all have accents, faux Asian accents, and you know, and everything. And the actors don't have the accents; <laughs> they have to put on the accents. <laughs> it's infuriating, isn't it? Like, and I just think, oh, you don't need to do that. People are smarter than that. But you know, whatever. Faux Asian accents. I'm just even trying to imagine what that sounds oh, like. Just the, you know, I don't, I don't even want to dignify yeah, that with the uh, impression. <laughs> I mean, that's that's really, really fascinating that you say so. I, I'd just like to ask what you feel are the recurrent tropes of Asian families or Asian males and also why you think these stereotypes continue to dominate? I think... I think, well, the most obvious stereotypes are Asians as, you know, a silent majority or minority. They're always um, in the background. They never have a voice. They're always the extras or, you know, um, the librarian or the smart girl or the whatever. And, um, like, for instance, I don't, I don't, I haven't watched that many sh uh, episodes of it, but girl, Lena Dunham's Girls, mm -hmm. I think in the pilot, the only Asian person of note was the intern who was good at Photoshop, who had no lines. <laughs> and all the four other girls are white. <laughs> and everyone else is white. <laughs> yeah, I was in New York. Yeah, and that's based in New York, which is one of the most multicultural and multi-ethnic places that you can imagine. So it's not reality what these people are writing about and what these people are directing and producing. It's not reality, you know? So, um, and in terms of maybe stereotypes of Asian men, there's Asian men are constantly desexualized in the mainstream media. Asian men are not sexual. It's, you cannot find them attractive. It's, um, it's just, it's not even on your radar that they can be sexual beings. You know, so we have this really weird thing where white people have a history of objectifying and sexualizing black men and desexualizing Asian men. <laughs> so it's kind of like, why don't you, you know, just treat people as people, you know? It's, it's fine to find someone ugly, but don't generalize the whole race mm. of people. I think that's the most, I think that's a very racist thing. And go, and that's that's something that really bothers me when people say, "Oh, I'm not really into black girls. Oh, I'm not really into Asian men. Oh, I don't do Asians." Mm -hmm. Excuse me, <laughs> yeah. how the hell do you think that's okay to say? And people say, "Oh, it's just a preference." Oh, what? <laughs> what kind of preference is that? <laughs> it's a farce. It's a farce. But people, it's still such a widespread common notion. And why do you think it's so widespread? I think, I think they persist mainly because, I, who knows, but I think deep down human beings are very comfortable with the comfortable. Mm. <laughs> They're very, they like the familiar. 
whether you want to admit it or not, you once again you it's tribal. You gravitate towards people who look like you, and I think there are two sides to that. On one hand, I think that's a very good thing. I think you you kind of do have to stick together sometimes, and it's good to have friends who, if you're black, it's good to have friends that are also black. And that doesn't mean that all your friends are exclusively black. But similarly, if you're gay, you should have gay friends. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I don't really understand these gay men who hate gay men. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> why do you hate yourself? Um, <laughs> so, so similarly, I think people are just so used to what they're used to. Um, and on the flips, and and then you have the opposite of that, where they do find the exotic very alluring. But of mm-hmm. course, that's a whole another issue of you yeah. know bag wars, where people fetishize human beings and uh, commodify race mm-hmm. and sexualize race. Um, you know, you have uh, the white guys who exclusively like white uh, Asian girls, and you know, whereas you don't really have you know the white women liking the Asian men. You know, it doesn't really go both ways. So it's really complicated and complex how these, not preferences, but prejudices are materialized in everyday life. That's, that was so interesting. Yeah, that's so, so many questions I have from that, but we didn't have enough time. I just have one more question, because you've lived a very international life, not necessarily completely by choice, and your parents moving around, um, but you seem to have embraced it. But I wanted to find out, yeah, how do you create a sense of home and rootedness where you are? For me, I th- it is obviously making friends there that you see pretty much every day or close to every day. I mean, I still see my university friends pretty much every week. Um, I'm very lucky that my sister is here with me in London. I don't live with her, but she goes to university in London. So I do see her occasionally as well. But more than that, I, wherever I go, I try to consume the culture of that country. Because if you're in a country and you don't know what's happening in the news or on TV or what's out in the cinemas or what everyone's listening to or reading, then you're not really experiencing life in that country. (laughs) You need to be open to that. I really try to make a point to actually go out there and see, you know, what are people interested in? And I guess uh, the good side of that nowadays is you don't even have to go out. You just (laughs) Google. (laughs) You don't even have to leave your home. You don't have to leave your home, you know, or your room. You just Google Google things and... (laughs) No, but I think that's so important, what people watch and, and read and consume. And that's really how I stay rooted, I guess, being engaged in the culture, cultural zeitgeist. Yeah. I'm Tana. And I'm Yosola. And that was Diaspora Files, with music by the wonderful Post Louis. If you enjoyed the show, give us some love by following us on Facebook, Twitter and SoundCloud for future episodes and more diasporic delights.